0: Chapter Two of Men of Iron. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Men of Iron by Howard Pyle. Chapter Two. From the time the family escaped from Falworth Castle that midwinter night to the time Myles was sixteen years old, he knew nothing of the great world beyond Crosby Dale. A fair was held twice in a twelvemonth at the market-town of Wiseby, and three times in the seven years old Dickon Bowman took the lad to see the sights at that place. Beyond these three glimpses of the outer world he lived almost as secluded a life as one of the neighbouring monks of St. Mary's Priory. Crosby Holt, their new home, was different enough from Falworth or Easterbridge Castle, the former baronial seats of Lord Falworth. It was a long, low, straw-thatched farmhouse once when the church-lands were divided into two holdings one of the bailiffs houses all around were fruitful farms of the priory tilled by well-to-do tenant holders and rich with fields of waving grain and meadow lands where sheep and cattle grazed in flocks and herds for in those days the church-lands were under church rule and were governed by church laws and there when war and famine and waste and sloth blighted the outside world Harvests flourished, and were gathered, and sheep were sheared, and cows were milked, in peace and quietness. The Priory of St. Mary's owed much, if not all, of the church prosperity to the blind Lord Falworth, and now he was paying it back with a haven of refuge from the ruin that his former patron had brought upon himself by giving shelter to Sir John Dale. I fancy that most boys do not love the grinding of school-life, the lessons to be conned, the close application during study-hours it is not often pleasant to brisk lively lads to be so cooped up i wonder what the boys of today would have thought of miles's training with him that training was not only of the mind but of the body as well and for seven years it was almost unremitting thou hast thine own way to make in the world sirrah his father said more than once when the boy complained of the grinding hardness of his life and to make one's way in those days meant a thousand times more than it does now It meant not only a heart to feel and a brain to think, but a hand quick and strong to strike in battle, and a body tough to endure the wounds and blows in return. And so it was that Miles's body, as well as his mind, had to be trained to meet the needs of the dark age in which he lived. Every morning, winter or summer, rain or shine, he tramped away six long miles to the priory school, and in the evenings his mother taught him French. Miles, being prejudiced in the school of thought of his day, rebelled not a little at that last branch of his studies. "'Why must I learn that vile tongue?' said he." "'Call it not vile,' said the blind old lord grimly. Belike, when thou art grown a man, thou have to find thy fortune in France land, for England is haply no place for such as be of Falworth blood." And in after years, true to his father's prediction, the vile tongue served him well. As for his physical training, that pretty well filled up the hours between his morning studies at the monastery and his evening studies at home. Then it was that old Dickon Bowman took him in hand, then whom none could be better fitted to shape his young body to strength and his hands to skill in arms. The old Bowman had served with Lord Falworth's father under the Black Prince, both in France and Spain, and in long years of war had gained a practical knowledge of arms that few could surpass. Besides the use of the broadsword, the short sword, the quarterstaff, and the cudgel, he taught Miles to shoot so skillfully with the longbow and the crossbow that not a lad in the countryside was his match at the village butts. Attack and defence with the lance and throwing the knife and dagger were also part of his training. Then, in addition to this more regular part of his physical training, Miles was taught in another branch, not so often included in the military education of the day, the art of wrestling. It happened that a fellow lived in Crosby Village, by name Ralph the Smith, who was the greatest wrestler in the countryside, and had worn the champion belt for three years. Every Sunday afternoon in fair weather he came to teach Miles the art, and being wonderfully adept in bodily feats, he soon grew so quick and active and firm-footed that he could cast any lad under twenty years of age living within a range of five miles. "'It is main ungentle armscraft that he learneth,' said Lord Falworth one day to Prior Edward. Saving only the broadsword, the dagger, and the lance, there is but little that a gentleman of his strain may use. Nevertheless, he gaineth quickness and suppleness, and if he hath true blood in his veins, he will acquire knightly arts shrewdly quick when the time cometh to learn them. But hard and grinding as Myles' life was, it was not entirely without pleasures. There were many boys living in Crosby Dale and the village, yeomen's and farmers' sons, to be sure, but nevertheless lads of his own age. And that, after all, is the main requirement for friendship in boyhood's world. Then there was the river to bathe in, there were the hills and valleys to roam over, and the wold and woodland, with their wealth of nuts and birds' nests, and what not, of boyhood's treasures. Once he gained a triumph that for many a day was very sweet under the tongue of his memory. As was said before, he had been three times to the market-town at fair time, and upon the last of these occasions he had fought a bout of quarter-staff with a young fellow of twenty, and had been the conqueror. He was, then, only a little over fourteen years old. Old Dickon, who had gone with him to the fair, had met some cronies of his own, with whom he had sat gossiping in the ale-booth, leaving miles for the nonce to shiffer himself. By and by the old man had noticed a crowd gathered at one part of the fair-ground, and snuffing a fight had gone running, ale-pot in hand. Then, peering over the shoulders of the crowd, he had seen his young master, stripped to the waist, fighting like a gladiator, with a fellow a head taller than himself. Dickon was about to force his way through the crowd and drag them asunder, but a second look had showed his practised eye that Miles was not only holding his own, but was in the way of winning the victory. So he had stood with the others, looking on, withholding himself from any interference, and whatever upbraiding might be necessary, until the fight had been brought to a triumphant close. Lord Falworth never heard directly of the redoubtable affair, but old Dickon was not so silent with the common folk of Crosby Dale, and so no doubt the father had some inkling of what had happened. It was shortly after this notable event that Miles was formally initiated into squirehood. His father and mother, as was the custom, stood sponsors for him. By them, each bearing a lighted taper, he was escorted to the altar. It was at St. Mary's Priory, and Prior Edward blessed the sword and girded it to the lad's side. No one was present but the four, and when the good prior had given the benediction and had signed the cross upon his forehead, Miles's mother stooped and kissed his brow just where the priest's finger had drawn the holy sign. Her eyes brimmed bright with tears as she did so. Poor lady! Perhaps she only then and for the first time realized how big her fledgling was growing for his nest. Henceforth Miles had the right to wear a sword. Miles had ended his fifteenth year. He was a bonny lad, with brown face, curling hair, a square strong chin, and a pair of merry-laughing blue eyes. His shoulders were broad, his chest was thick of girth, his muscles and thews were as tough as oak. The day upon which he was sixteen years old, as he came whistling home from the monastery school, he was met by Dickon Bowman. "'Master Miles,' said the old man, with a snuffle in his voice, "'Master Miles, thy father would see thee in his chamber and bade me send thee to him, as soon as thou didst come home. O oh, master Miles, I fear me that belike thou art going to leave home to-morrow day." Miles stopped short. "'To leave home!' he cried. "'Aye,' said old Dickon, "'belike thou goest to some grand castle to live there, and be a page there, and what not, and then, haply, a gentleman-at-arms in some great lord's pay.' "'What coil is this about castles and lords and gentlemen-at-arms?' said Miles. "'What talkest thou of, Dickon? Art thou jesting?' "'Nay,' said Dickon, "'I am not jesting. But go to thy father, and thou wilt presently know all. Only this I do say, that it is like thou leavest us till morrow day.'" And so it was, as Dickon had said. Miles was to leave home the very next morning. He found his father and mother and Prior Edward together, waiting for his coming. "'We three have been talking it over this morning,' said his father, and so think, each one, that the time hath come for thee to quit this poor home of ours. And thou stay here ten years longer, thou be no more fit to go than thou. To-morrow I will give thee a letter to my kinsman, the Earl of Mackworth. He has thriven in these days, and I have fallen away. But time was, he and I were true sworn companions, and plighted together in friendship, never to be sundered. Methinks, as I remember him, he will abide by his plighted troth. And will give thee his aid to rise in the world. So, as I said, to-morrow morning thou shalt set forth with Dickon Bowman, and shall go to Castle Devlin, and there deliver this letter, which prayeth him to give thee a place in his household. Thou mayest have this afternoon to thyself, to make ready such things as thou shalt take with thee, and bid me Dickon to take the grey horse to the village, and have it shod." Prior Edward had been standing, looking out of the window. As Lord Falworth ended, he turned, And, Miles, he said, thou wilt need some money, so I will give thee, as a loan, forty shillings, which some day thou mayst return to me as thou wilt. For this know, Miles, a man cannot do in the world without money. Thy father hath it ready for thee in the chest, and will give it to thee to-morrow, ere thou goest. Lord Falworth had the grim strength of manhood's hard sense to upbear him in sending his son into the world, but the poor lady mother had nothing of that to uphold her no doubt it was as hard then as it is now for the mother to see the nestling thrust from the nest to shift for itself what tears were shed what words of love were spoken to the only man-child none but the mother and the son ever knew the next morning miles and the old bowman rode away and no doubt to the boy himself the dark shadows of leave-taking were lost in the golden light of hope as he rode out into the great world to seek his fortune End of chapter two.